Good morning, everybody that's not going downstairs. Good morning. Oh, come on. Is everybody still asleep? Is it the cool weather? <laughs> Good morning. Thank you. Tim's got my back. It's great to be with you guys this morning, um, and uh, welcome. We, uh, you know this, but uh, if you've been here for the last few weeks, but we've been going through a series uh, in the fall called uh, "For the Good of the Garden State." And uh, if you've been around, you know that we have uh, we've called it this uh, this series "For the Good of the Garden State" because that comes from our mission statement as a church that we want to grow communities that are rooted in Christ that produce fruit for the good of the Garden State. And so we've been exploring what that good is um, that, that would happen in the Garden State if we were those kinds of people that were rooted in the Gospel, rooted in our identity in Christ, producing fruit out of a new identity uh, in terms of a new life that He gives us. What kind of world would that create as God does that in His people? What kind of community in the Garden State in New Jersey would we see um, if God did that work. And we know one day He will do that work completely and finally through the work of His Son when He comes back. But Jesus taught us to pray that His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we, as a church, it means when we're thinking about our life together as a community, we should not just think of what kind of community should we be. We should be thinking what kind of community through us does God want to create in the world. And so that's, that's essentially what we've been doing. And we've been going through six key areas that we, we want to focus on in this season that we would love not just to be true of us as a community, but we would love to be true of the Garden State itself. And so if you, you've been around, you know that these six key things are reconciliation, generosity, justice, which we're going to talk about today, hospitality, communion, and blessing. And so it, what would it look like for the Garden State to have these states of being as part of, their, as part of the core of our community? What, what kind of place would that be to live in? And hopefully, as you've been thinking about this and, and dreaming as I've been dreaming for the last couple weeks, it, it, it should spark a little bit of excitement because this is the kind of world that all of us dream to live in because we're made in the image of a God who wants to bring these things about. And so these shouldn't be like, oh man, like generosity. I, would, I hate to live in a community like that where everyone's generous to one another all the time. No, we should be saying, this is the kind of place, this is the kind of neighborhood I would love to live in. A place where there's reconciliation happening between people with differences and from different backgrounds and different races and different statuses. A place of generosity where nobody has need, but everyone's needs are cared for because no one considers what they have to be their own but to be shared to the community because they're gifts that God has given them. And the same thing is true for justice. Uh, justice is one of those key ideas that is very, very close to the heart of Jesus and what he wants to bring about in the world. In fact, um, if you were to look at many people, what many people consider to be a summary statement of what it means to be a follower of God, a believer of God, or a believer in Jesus, someone who knows and follows Him. It's Micah 6.8. If you've ever heard this before, maybe it's going to sound familiar to you. He says, 
He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? What does it mean to live a life of goodness in the world? To be a person after God's own heart? He says it's to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And many people who study this say that this passage isn't just isn't like three separate things like, okay, if you can check the box on all of them, then you're, then you're living a great life. No, to walk humbly with your God is to love the things that God loves, which is to love mercy. It's to love seeing people discover the mercy and grace of God. And, and, and then when you do that, when you love the things that God loves, you will, as this verse says, execute justice. You will live a life where you want justice to be part of the, the very fabric of our society, which means that if this is the summary of what it means to know and to love God, then if we are Jesus' church, we must know what that term means. Not just what it means, but how to do it. We should be experts at this. So, so let me ask you, what do you think of when you hear that term? When you, what comes to mind when you think of a community being a community of justice that's just and good? I know the first thing that comes to your mind is the Justice League. So I'll just throw that right out there because I know somebody's going to say it. So you think of Superman and Batman and all those awesome guys. But what do they do? Yeah. Yeah, where things are right, where, um, where there is no injustice. Maybe that's, it. sometimes that's a better way to put it. It makes it clearer for us. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so there's a, a full ex- exposure or accountability to those who are in seats of power. Why? Okay. Yeah, so we need, so we, we want our, the, the people that we elect to positions of power, we want them to act justly. And one of the ways to ensure that is to create accountability and exposure for what they do, right? Because it's harder to get away with things when, they're, when those things are br- being brought to light, right? I mean, think, you know, we're, we live in the Garden State. It just happens to be the same state where there's national news going on around Bridgegate, Right? And uh, all the things that are getting exposed from that, that there were dealings and, and decisions being made in order, all around kind of the political clout and what you know, certain people will and will not do. And we look at stuff like that and we go, how in the world in, in 2016 does something like that happen? That's unjust, right? To be able to shut down lanes of a bridge and cause traffic backups for miles and miles and miles, potentially even endangering the people that are in the, that situation, all because someone, you know, was, was uh, playing a political game on someone, on another human being. They go, that, that should not stand. That's injustice, right? What else? Yeah. Yeah, we're not there yet, right? When we think of, of our own community and, and the world that we live in, we, we cannot reasonably say that it is a just world. It may be far more just than it was 2,000 years ago, but we're, not, we're certainly not there yet. We're going to talk about why that is. 
What else do you think of? Okay, yeah, when there's love and respect for one another, mutually. Yeah. Yeah, so there's, there are puni- equal punishments for, for a crime, right? Yeah. Yeah, so you'd stand up for people that are being treated unjustly. There's a responsibility that we have, all of us have, to create a more just society. See, it's funny how most of our minds go to a certain level of thinking when we think about justice. Um, Here's what you need to know, though. The Bible is far more multifaceted when God talks about a just world. Far, far more than we tend to be. Um, so, So we need to know, what is that multifaceted nature of justice? What does it mean to live a life of justice? If we're to be experts at it as this community, we need to know something about it. And here's, here's the reality. The word justice uh, is actually in the Bible, or at least in the Old Testament, the word that's used there, some 200 times. If something appears 200 times in the Old Testament alone, it's a big deal, right? That's a lot of times. And it's the Hebrew word mishpat is the word for justice. But if, as you're reading along your Old Testament, you might go, I, I, I don't remember seeing it 200 times. Maybe you've read through the Old Testament. You're like, it's just, I, I don't remember hearing that word that many times. But here's the, the thing. Sometimes it's not always translated as the word just or justice. Sometimes it's translated as uh, upholds the cause or righteous. And so an example of that is Psalm 146, which we're going to refer to several times. Verse 7 says this about God. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food for the hungry. That word upholds the cause is the word mishpat. It's justice. Psalm 9 verse 16 says this. The Lord is known by his acts of justice. It's his calling card, in other words. So what does it mean to execute mishpat? What does it mean to to be a people of justice. If it's there 200 times, we need to know. And here's maybe a basic definition of justice. It, to do justice is to give people their due. I'll repeat that again. To do justice is to give people their due. And there's two ways that you can think about giving people their, their due. Most of the time when we think about giving people their due, who are we thinking about? Criminals, right? We're thinking of wrongdoers. We're thinking of people that do evil acts in the world and we want them to get the justice that they deserve. The justice that they're due, right? And so we think about when someone does something wrong, justice is to stop them and to punishment to punish them in accordance with what they've done. And, and the reason that we have this sense of justice is because if people were to continue exploiting or harming others, without being stopped or restricted, they'll go on doing it, right? And so there's a sense that the person needs to experience justice, but there's also a sense of communal justice that you need to restrict this person from continuing to do these evil acts. And if you don't do that, you're not doing justice. One of the the ways that the Bible talks about that's in Leviticus 24.22. It says, you have... You are to have the same law, and this is a a law that was supposed to be for Israel. 
Um, the same law for the foreigner as for the native born. I am the Lord your God. And what he's saying in Leviticus 24 is you are to have the same mishpat, the same justice for the foreigner, for the immigrant that is in your midst, the person that wanders into your country as for the citizen. So if someone commits, or if two people commit the same kind of crime, it's not one set of punishment for the citizen and another set for the immigrant. No, they are equally given the same justice. That is what it means to be just for those people. And so mishpat in cases of wrongdoing means to punish and to bring judgment to the evildoer. And, and here's the thing. We, we've been taught as Americans to love this form of justice. Right? We have symbols for it and branches of government around that idea that it's equal and impartial and blind. Right? It's supposed to be. Those are our ideals. And equal protection, yeah. But the, and the reason that we like the, to think about this form of justice One is because it makes us feel safe as a society, right? I mean, you feel safe being part of a a community that gives the, the, the appropriate punishment for those people that do wrong so that they don't do it again. But there's a deeper issue, actually, that's going on because all of us are made in the image of God and there's something in our DNA that knows that when people do wrong, justice is needed. Something is needed when things go wrong. So we demand it. When, when someone decides to set off explosives in New York City, and the, the, that, that happens in our society and the person is yet found, all of us collectively go, we need to find that guy and make sure that he gets what he deserves. All of us do that, right? And it's not just an issue of safety. That's part of it. But it is a deeper issue that says, we know that, that if you do something like that, there is a punishment for that that needs to be doled out every single time. See, but Mishpat is not just giving out justice for wrongdoing. That's the way that we tend to think of it. But there's a second part of, of justice, which means that we give the weak and the oppressed their due. It's not, so it's not just that we give the wrongdoers and the evil people their due. It means that, that we want to see a world where those who are weak and oppressed get their due. Psalm 146, again, is a great place to look at this. In verse 7, it says this about God. We already referenced this a little bit, but it says, He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. And what he's saying is, when God thinks about justice, he's not just thinking about making sure that evildoers get their due. He's saying there are groups of vulnerable people who have been oppressed in society, and God wants to use his influence and authority to make sure that they get their due. Now, who are those people? Over and over and over again, if you read through the Bible, you will see that God continuously references four groups of people as needing justice. People as needing their due and not getting it. And it's, those who, it's not those who've done wrong, it's those who've been forgotten. And so he references these groups of people. Widows, 
orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. These are people who are in a vulnerable position in society because they are easily overlooked. They're easily trampled upon. They're weak. They don't have a voice for themselves. And so what it means to do justice as a follower of God is to give these groups of people what is due to them because for, for no other reason that they bear the image of God and they have incredible, incredible value in His eyes. So if we're going to be people of justice, that has to be part of the equation. Now, how do you do that? How do you give them their due? What does it look like? There's a great section in Job where uh, Job is having a conversation with God about all the reasons why he's suffering. We looked at that about a year ago. And he, he's, he's talking to God. He's talking through his life and he's inspecting uh, the quality of his life because he, he wants, he's, he's saying basically, I'm searching my heart to see if there's a reason going on for the, the reasons that I'm suffering and I'm not finding it. And here's what he says about his life. In Job 29, verses 12 to 16, he says, I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist them. The one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. Now what is he saying? He's saying, these things, when I think about a life of justice, justice was my robe, which means it was the way that I lived out every single day. It's it, just like putting on a garment before going out of the house. This is the way in which I walked through the world. Every day I met the needs of the poor, and I was a father to the fatherless, and I encouraged widows, and I spoke on behalf of the immigrant and those who don't have a voice themselves. And so the way that Job is thinking about justice for the poor is kind of in a couple ways. And we tend to think of, of like, if, if we're going to be the kind of people that has respect for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized, then, then oftentimes what we think is just a lack of doing things directly to them, right? Because we tend to be very individualistic in our society, and so we think of things solely in terms of our own responsibility before God, and we go, well, if I don't know any poor people and I'm not directly harming them, then that means that I'm doing okay in this deal of justice, right? Right? I'm doing all right, right? Well, I'm not so sure. Because I mean, obviously, to do direct harm to people that are oppressed means that you're not being just to them. But it actually goes beyond that. There's more to it. And here's, this is where I think that we're all going to need a little bit more convincing. It's also unjust to ignore the weak. It is unjust not just to do harm to them. It is unjust to ignore them. 
when you ignore the, the needs of the widow, the needs of the orphan, the needs of the immigrant, and the needs of the poor, when you simply choose not to notice them or care for them, the Bible would say that we are equally as guilty as the person who does harm to them. This is where I think we don't believe it. When we ignore them, we are just as equally guilty as when we do direct harm to them. I can tell you don't believe me. We need convincing. Okay, look at Isaiah 58. In Isaiah 58, God is giving a word to his prophet Isaiah to carry to the people. And it's not going to be a message that they like to hear. Uh, The people of Israel are very religious people. From all external appearances, it seems like they're doing the right thing and they're worshiping God and they're trying to love their neighbor. If you were to, in fact, visit them during the day when this prophecy was spoken, you'd think, this is a pretty good society. Like, if I were going to choose a place to live based solely on, on just the quality of the people's lives and the way that they live them out, this would be one of the places where you'd go, yeah, that'd be, that'd be pretty high on my list. And yet here's what it says. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. I wonder why Isaiah would be tempted to hold back from what he's about to say. He says, don't hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commandments of God. You might think at this point, like, what did they do? I mean, it must be scandalous, right? They're breaking commandments. They think they're doing right, but they're not doing right. Uh, It's got to be bad. Okay, let's keep reading. They they asked me for just decisions, and so they they seem to want to know what God, they, they want God to work on their behalf. And they seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? So in other words, God, what gives? Why are you being so unjust to us? Why aren't you hearing us? Why aren't you responding? We're asking you for things. We're clearly doing all of our religious duties and you don't seem to be listening. Why? And God says, yet on the day of your fasting... You do as you please and exploit all your workers. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is, this, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. What's God saying to them? He's saying from all external appearances, you seem to be really religious. You seem to be very moral, very spiritual. You're going to church all the time. You're tithing. You're... you're, 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 you're doing all the things that you think are the right things to do, and yet you're forgetting one very important thing. Apparently, what was going on was, when they were doing all this and resting from their work, they forgot to tell their workers that they could rest too. 
And so all the, the free people and, the, and uh, the, the high in society are marching right into the temple going, yeah, life is great. And meanwhile, in their fields are all the poor people and the oppressed people. And they're going, we didn't even get an hour off, let alone a day. And I don't think that they were directly thinking, we're going to do something to punish those evil, weak, poor people. They simply forgot about them. They simply just ignored them. They weren't high on their radar. And because of that, in verse 1, it starts out and says, Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. What makes them so rebellious and sinful? It's the fact that they chose to do what they pleased. In other words, all you could think about, Israel, was yourself. And in thinking only about yourself, you've forgotten the vulnerable. You haven't shared your food with the hungry or provided for the poor wanderer or sheltered or clothed the naked. You haven't done these things that are dear and near to my heart and these people whom I love that I've put in your midst for their care and you've ignored them. Do you feel the weight of that? That's why Proverbs 14, verse 21 says, It is a sin to despise one's neighbor, but blessed is the one who is kind to the needy. The, the word despise, I mean, we think about that as being like the harshest thing that you could possibly be towards one another, but it doesn't necessarily just mean that. It could simply mean to consider someone as insignificant or having no value. It's to take someone lightly. It's to consider them less than a human being. Which means, for us, dear family, if widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor are insignificant, if they have no value, if they have no impact on the way in which we live our daily lives or how we spend our money or our time, we are rebelling against God himself. How's everybody feeling at this point in the message? Not great, right? That's justice. It's to say, I will not ignore the needs of my fellow human being because they are a brother or sister. And to do anything less than that is to be unjust. Do you feel the weight of that? It's not just making sure that evildoers get their due. It's making sure that those who are forgotten get their due. And the way that they get their due is through the people of God who gives them their due because they value them and they don't ignore them. And so I, we need to ask the question because it's, it's so easy to to go, okay, like these four categories, widows, orphans, immigrants, and poor. And to say to ourselves, I don't really know anyone that fits into those categories. Like personally, in my own spheres of influence, I just don't know anybody in those categories. We need to break down that wall and that barrier to realize that they're, they're all around us. They're everywhere. So, so, I mean, help me out here. Who are the widows? In your, in your spheres of life, who do you think those people might be? Single moms, single parents, the elderly. I've got two on my street, at least. They live, they live around me, right? Disabled folks, OK? 
Okay. Do you have anybody like that near you? Just raise your hand, being honest. Do you have folks like that in your walks of life? I do. Who are the immigrants, the foreigners, the strangers? Those vile North Jerseyans <laughs> traipsing through our South Jersey territory <laughs> on their way to Point South. <laughs> Who else? Yeah, so people that are trying to make their way in the culture that we are part of already. It's essentially making people who don't feel at home at home. Anyone who does not feel at home at home. And that could be a transplant from Florida. That could be a transplant from El Salvador. Is your responsibility different for one over the other? regardless of the way that they got into South Jersey in the first place? Is it different? Not according to the justice of God. Not according to his justice. If that person is in your midst, if they are a stranger, regardless of how they got there, we have a responsibility to them. Now, part of justice might mean that, you know, we we want people to obey the laws of this land, but realize that many of the laws of this land are not the laws of God. And the way that God had even the, uh, the paths of immigration into the culture of Israel were far different than the ones in this country. They were expected to welcome anyone who came on their shores. And we have that as an ideal in terms of this country, but we often don't live up to that ideal. And we treat the foreigner as different than the native born. And God says those two laws need to be the same. You treat everyone as an image bearer of God, Right? How about the orphans? Who are the orphans among us? Okay, latchkey kids. So kids who are essentially parenting themselves through life because mom and dad have checked out or maybe one parent has and so the responsibility is far greater on them than it should be otherwise. Who else? Who are the orphans? Anyone without a family. Good. Okay. Those that are not reconciled yet to their Heavenly Father, and so they aren't at home in His family. Do you know anybody like that? (laughs) How about the kids that are in foster care today? Do you know right now there are 2,457 kids that are waiting for adoption? in the state of New Jersey today? Do you know that there are 408 kids that will age out of foster care without a permanent family this year? Did you know that family? I didn't know that before this week, and I, I, I wept over that, that statistic. Do you know how many churches there are in the state of New Jersey? More than 2,457. Do you know what that means? If every church had one family that said, yes, I will make a permanent family for the orphan in New Jersey, we would essentially, virtually eradicate orphans in the foster care system for one year. That's amazing. I, I, was, I, I was thinking about that. I'm going, 
Why haven't we solved this issue yet? (laughs) Why is this still a thing in New Jersey? I don't get it. Why have we not done this? It breaks my heart that that we live in a day when kids go uncared for in that way, when it could simply take one in a hundred to say yes. That's a very small percentage, right? It's amazing. How many of you know people that fall into one of these categories that we talked about? Widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. We all do. If we're looking, we all know these people. So what does it mean to do justice to these four groups of people? Simply put, it means that we are to leverage every advantage and privilege that we have been given for them. I'll say that again because it's really important. If you're going to write anything down, this is what it means. When it comes to those who are oppressed and forgotten, to do justice to them means that we leverage every advantage and privilege that we have been given for their sake. And we've been given so many privileges and advantages. See, I, I just I want to just ask you to, with the Spirit's help, just consider: is there any, is there any one person, or or maybe a group of people that He's putting on your heart right now that you need to do that for? You need to leverage the advantages and privileges and things that you've been given. Have you been given a home that you can leverage for that? Have you been given an hour that you could leverage for them? Have you been given just a small amount of money to be able to leverage towards those who don't have? I don't know who the person is or who the, the, the thing is, what the thing is that you could leverage for them, but I do know that you have it, and I do know that there are people around you, which means if we're thinking seriously about this family, we will connect the dots. And we'll follow God into this. For Mandy and me, it's particularly the, the, the area of orphan care. And God has put this on our heart several times over the last year. And we're in the process of uh, getting registered as uh, a foster family. Because we can't let this stand. And, and to, to think that God has our family just for us when we've been adopted into the family of God, when he gave up every privilege and right to make us children of the Most High God. We just think, how in the world could we receive such grace without pouring it out to others? And, and I don't say that to say that's, that should be the reaction of every family. I'm not going there. I'm not trying to guilt you into doing something that he hasn't put on your heart. I'm simply saying that's what he's putting on our heart. And so we're trying as best as we can just to be faithful to it. And let me be honest with you, it's scary because we like our family the way it is. We have two great boys and we love the space that we have and we love the neighborhood we have. We like the way that things are today. And so the, the thought of changing all that to care for what God cares about, it's scary to us. And so I can't promise that it... Being faithful to him won't be scary to you either in the ways that he leads you to do it. But what I can say is the reason that he might put that on your heart is because that's who he is.
See, he, God is not saying anything to us to, to expect us to do something that he isn't already doing. Right? I mean, that would be unjust, is to say, I'm not willing to do it. This isn't who I am, but I want you to do it. We go, that's hypocritical and unjust. You can't demand that of me. But that's not our God. Our God is a God of justice. In fact, if you look through the Old Testament, the, the, the way that God chooses to introduce himself most of the time is that way. Psalm 146, verse 6, says, He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. So he's got all power and authority. Verse 7, And he upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. God is saying, this is who I am. I have all, all power, all authority. What do I do with it? I use my power and my authority for those who have none. That's what I do. You want to know what I'm about in the world? That's it. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17 and 18 say, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. It's hard to miss God's majesty, right, in him saying that who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. And, and this is the very next thing he says about himself. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. That's what he does. That's who he is. And then he goes on to say for his people, and you are to love the foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. God isn't saying... I'm expecting you to do something I'm not willing to do. He's, every time he goes, I go first. And as I go first, you follow me. That's what it means to be a follower of God. You follow him where he goes, when he goes, to, who he, to whom he goes. Right? This is who I am, he says. I am the defender of the weak, father to the fatherless, lover of the outcast. In fact, if, if you looked on his business card, or, or the description page of his social media account in, on his Twitter feed. It, this would be the description of who he is. If you look at my you know, Twitter account, which probably hasn't been updated in a while, but it, it says, Jay, father, or husband of Mandy, father of two boys, pastor of Cultivate Church, loved by Jesus. If you want a summary statement of who I am as an individual, that's it. God says, this is the summary statement of who I am. This is my calling card. This is how I want people to know what I am in the world. I am not the God of the powerful or the rich or the racially superior or the well-fed or the well-clothed. Why? Because when you have those privileges, you have a voice for yourself. And I am the God of the voiceless. I am their voice. I am the God of all power who lifts, lifts up those at the bottom. This is how I want to be known in the world. What, and so let me ask just this question. What does that mean for us if we're his community? What do you think that means for us? If we're followers of that kind of God, and that's his calling card in the world. That's what he's famous for. What's it mean for us? That means we should be famous for it too. We should be famous for our care of the poor and the disadvantaged. We should be known throughout South Jersey as that being true.
just as it's true of him. Does that seem unreasonable? Does that seem out of bounds for what God might call us to? I don't think so. I don't think so. Are we famous for it? Are we known? Are you known in your job, in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood as being like this God? I think God wants to do it in you. I'm not saying you are to do anything that he doesn't empower you to do. But this should be the reality for us. Because here's the thing. The reason that God brought us into his family in the first place is so that he would show the world what, is, what this God is like. And so if we simply talk about a God that is like this, but we don't live it out, what in the world will the world, what conclusion would they come to? Either we're hypocrites, which is true most of the time, or that God isn't really the God who, that he says he is. See, but when they see us caring for the poor as he cares for the poor, it, it, it causes the world to go, what in the world is going on? Is there really a God like that who might empower people to live out justice? So how do you do it? That's the question, right? Let's, let's not just reside in guilt of like what we should or should not do because that's never where the gospel leads us. It's never the life that God wants for you is to just go, well, I, I know I should do this, but I don't really feel like doing this. So, gosh, I just ha- have this like internal conflict in my heart and I don't know what to do with it. Well, I guess I'll forget about it. And that's often what happens, right? Now, here, here's the thing. When, when it comes to how you do it, the, the answer that the world often gives us is, well, just do it, right? It's the Nike slogan. Just go and do it. Like, if that's what's required of you, just do it. Or we'll say, do it because it feels good. Do it because it feels good. There's a major problem, though, with that line of thinking because what God says is the reason that you don't do it in the first place is because you're doing as you please. In other words, you're selfish and I'm selfish. We want our lives to primarily be about what feels good. And so to say, do justice because it feels good, is appealing to our selfishness in order to be less selfish. Do you see the problem there? It can't work. If, if you only do justice, if you only care for the, the needs when you feel like doing it, you won't be like the God of justice. And eventually you won't feel like doing it. And so you'll stop. It'll only last you a little while. So what does work? How can you change? How does he want to do it in you before he does it through you? And again, I think Psalm 146 is really helpful because before it talks about the kind of God that is, is the God of all power, who uses all that power on behalf of the weak, and then he talks about what it looks like for God to lift up the needy and care for the poor and feed the hungry and all the rest, before he says any of that, in verse 5, this is what it says. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. See, the psalmist says, if you want to become like the God of justice, you need to put your hope in the God of justice in order to change. 
That's the only way that it works. You can't muster up the strength. You can't muster up the, the, the goodwill to do it yourself. It won't work, not in the long run. You need a greater sense of help. You need a greater hope than just what you can do. In other words, stop telling yourself that I'll do it better next time. Or I'll, I'll, I'll get around to it. Or I'm just waiting until it feels like the right time. See, see you, you, you won't fulfill it that way. It's impossible to do it. We need to be people that can say, I need your help. I need the God of justice who uses his power on behalf of the poor to make me selfless. That's the only way that it can work. Otherwise, we're just left to ourselves and when we're left to ourselves, we will do what we please and we will be selfish people. We need him to make our hearts selfless. We need him to change us and to make us like him. He is our only help in this. Do you believe that, family? Do you believe that he can help you? See, it's not enough to believe in the God of justice. You have to actually put your hope in him. Now, but here's the scary thing. We've already said that to ignore the poor means that we're under God's condemnation, right? So not just to do harm to the poor, but to ignore them means that we are rebelling against God and sinning against him. And, and so to, to actually think of like putting your hope in a God that punishes people for that is a pretty scary thing, actually. Because who in the world knows what he might do to us if we put our hope in him? Especially when we look at Jesus and we see how high the bar he, he sets for what it means to love your neighbor. For instance, in Matthew 5, verse 21 and 22, he says, you've heard it said, uh, you, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, uh-oh, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. What? Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, that word Raka is something like saying to someone, you nobody, is answerable to the court. Whose court? God's court. And anyone who says, you fool, anyone who disregards their brother or their neighbor will, will be what? In danger of the fire of hell. That's, okay, that's, yeah, I don't know what to do with that. He's saying anyone who, who ignores, who takes lightly, who considers less than a, a human being, their brother, their neighbor, is putting themselves in danger of being judged by God eternally. See, in other words, if you aren't just as just as God himself, you are subject to his justice. You're actually under his justice rather than agents of his justice. So why would that be? Because if, if we're forgetting about, if we're despising, if we're hating our fellow human beings, even if we're ignoring them, 
then we're, we're, we're contributing to the, the fact that the world is an unjust place just as much as the person who does the acts of evil. We're not creating a better society. We're actually creating a worse one. And, and we all do this, right? All of us are guilty of this. So how in the world do you put your hope in a God of justice when it means that you could be condemned? Well, fortunately, Matthew 5 isn't the way that Jesus started his ministry. Luke 4 is. And in Luke 4, uh, it was Jesus' very first sermon to his hometown in Nazareth. And, uh, and he decides, as he stands up before uh, the synagogue, to read from Isaiah 61. Now, you remember, we just read Isaiah 58, right? Where it talked about the fact that God's people were rebelling against him because they weren't caring for the poor and the oppressed. Fast forward just three chapters, and what God says is, because you don't do it, because you haven't done it, I'm going to send a Messiah who will do it. And he will do what you have not been able to do. And he will be a a man of justice, my man of justice, who comes in the world and sets everything right and does it all the way that it's supposed to happen. And so Jesus stands up and he decides to read this, which is essentially him saying, I am that guy. I'm the, 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 the Messiah who's come into the world to bring God's justice into the world, to care for the poor, to give grace to the needy. And it's interesting, though, because he, he quotes Isaiah 61, and this is what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, Jesus quotes Isaiah 61. I don't know if you ever realized this, though, but he stops mid-verse. He doesn't quote all of it. If you keep reading in Isaiah 61, verse 2, the rest of that says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And Jesus chooses not to quote that portion of the scroll. Why in the world would Jesus stop mid-verse? We talk about being a selective reader. He just chooses to stop. It's not that it wasn't there. He just doesn't read it. And he sits back down and hands the scroll to the attendant. Why would he stop? He's supposed to be the guy that brings the the full justice of God into the world, right? Which should mean judgment for the evildoer and favor for the oppressed. But he doesn't do it. He forgets one half of the equation. Why? Jesus said, I've come to do justice freedom for the oppressed, good news for the poor, announce God's favor, grace to those who would put their hope in him. But he doesn't say, I'm here to bring the vengeance of God. I think this is why Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, puts it beautifully. And he says, Jesus Christ did not come to bring the vengeance of God into the world. He came to bear the vengeance of God. He did not come to bring judgment. He came to bear judgment. In other words, the reason that he could say, I've come to bring freedom for the oppressed and not say, I've come to punish the wicked was because he came to to take the punishment that we, the wicked, deserve. See, here's the thing. We all want the world to be a more just place, right? We want God to sweep in and just do the work and 
put everything right. But if he were to do that, it would mean that his judgment would fall on those who are guilty of not doing the kind of work that he requires, which is all of us. And so that means that God cannot put a full end to injustice without putting an end to us. He can't. He won't. And so what he does instead is Jesus Christ comes into the world and he goes to the cross and he stands in our place to take the judgment for those who don't love their neighbor as themselves upon himself. He takes the judgment that we deserve so that he could lift up the poor without crushing us at the same time. What that means, family, is when we put our hope in him, he stands by us forever. Even when we fail to love as he loves, because our rebellion has been dealt with forever by the one who does it perfectly. That's the reason when we come to the table, we celebrate both his body and his blood, right? His body is is saying, you do it better than I've ever done it. When it comes to those that are forgotten, you don't forget them. And because I do, I need your body. In me, I need a new life, the life that only you can live. But at the same time, I realize that I need your blood too because I didn't do it right and I need forgiveness of that. And your blood washes over every sin and makes me white as snow. It's the reason why we need both, right? Now here's the thing. When you have both, a God who does justice and the forgiveness of God that washes away the fact that we don't live that way, in the wake of that, receiving those two things. That's what it means to put our hope in him. When we receive those things by faith and we say, you are my hope for change, he comes in through his spirit and he creates change in us. He actually makes you a new person into a person of justice. And so when you think of the people that are around you, the, the, the folks that you would consider orphans and widows and the poor and the oppressed and the immigrant. You wouldn't say, gosh, I wish I could do something about that, or gosh, I feel guilty because I don't do something about that. You would say to yourself, with God's help, I'm forgiven for the fact that I haven't done something about that. And God, the reason that you keep reminding me about them is because through me, through us, you want to do something for them, and you will do it. Help us, Lord Jesus. See, as a community, we, we can waffle between being ignoring of the world's problems or so desperately wanting justice that we just want Jesus to come now. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Just do it all right. But at the same, I mean, even in your own heart, there should be a tension between these things. Where on the one hand, you want God to bring justice in the world. On the other hand, you don't want him to sweep away all the people that would be subject to his judgment if he were to do it. I don't know if you ever had this tension, but sometimes like when I'm around people, I see the injustice of the world. I go, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But at the same time, don't. (laughs) Wait. Because I want more people to know about you. I want them to put their hope in you. So that when you do bring justice into the world, they won't be swept away in it. See, God is going to bring about justice, but he's going to bring those of us that put our hope in him, with him, to do it. And here's the reality. He's doing it today. So often people go, I don't get it. Why would God allow injustice in the world? We've already addressed some of the reasons why that is. But on the flip side, 
we have to say as his people, he hasn't ignored the cries of his people. He's not silent. In fact, he put his spirit in his people to bring about justice. He's doing it today. And he will do it through you, and he will do it through me, he will do it through us. If he is our help, if he is our hope. Do you believe that, family? I'm starting to. I want to believe it more. Father, help in our unbelief. We want to believe that this is true, that we could not just feel guilty over the needs of the world, but to be driven and motivated to care for them out of love and not shame. Father, you are our help to do it. So please come, Jesus, and do it. Thank you, God, that when we put our hope in you, we are forgiven for all of our sins, all of our ignoring of those who are oppressed and have no voice. You've swept it all away so we can actually stand in your presence without condemnation. So wipe away our shame, Lord. But don't just leave us shameless. Leave us motivated to see change happen in South Jersey, in our neighborhood, in our job, in our workplace, in our school, with our families. Help us to be like you, the God of justice. We pray in Jesus' name.